Welcome to our podcast. I am Linda Messer. My husband Ron and I invite you to join us in our weekly broadcast of A New Voice of Freedom. Welcome to Season 5 of A New Voice of Freedom, written by Ronald Keith Messer. This podcast is part of a series we call Poets' Corner, an appendage to a series of books written under the banner In Defense of Christianity. This segment is from Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, Book 1, Canto 12, Part 4, Episode 41. Podcast 13 is entitled, The Marriage of Una and the Red Cross Knight. Welcome to the final episode of Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. In last week's episode, there was a tremendous celebration upon the death of the dragon. The Red Cross Knight is honored. The King of Eden announced the betrothal of his daughter Una to the Red Cross Knight. However, the knight must first serve the Fairy Queen for seven more years. As they celebrate the betrothal, a letter is delivered by a courier to the king declaring that the Red Cross Knight is already engaged to Fidessa. Fidessa, who wrote the letter, is actually Duessa, which means duplicity, an evil witch who has devoted her life to destroying the Red Cross Knight for killing her lover, Sans Foy, in battle. After reading the letter, the astonished king turns to the Red Cross Knight and commands him to answer the charges. When he these bitter biting words had read, the tidings strange did him abashed make, that still he sat long time astonished, as in great muse, knee words to creature spake. At last his solemn silence thus he brake with doubtful eyes fixed fast on his guest. Redoubted night, that for mine only sake thy life and honor late adventurest. Let not be hid from me that ought to be expressed. He asks the Red Cross Knight a number of questions. What do the vows and idle threats mean? What solemn vows of marriage before God were made? What crimes are you hiding? What mean these bloody vows and idle threats thrown out from womanish impatient mind? What heavens, what altars, what enraged heats, here heaped up with terms of love unkind, my conscience clear with guilty bands would bind. High God be witness that I guiltless am, but if yourself, Sir Knight, ye faulty find or wrapped be in loves of former dame, with crime do not it cover, but disclose the same. The innocent knight answers forthrightly. He confesses his past behavior with the deceitful Fidessa. He tells the king to withhold judgment until he knows the truth about Fidessa. To whom the Red Cross Knight this answer sent, My lord, my king, be not there dismayed, till well ye wot by grave intendment, what woman and wherefore doth me upbraid, with breach of love and loyalty betrayed. It was my mishap, as hitherward I lately travailed, that unawares I strayed out of my way, through peril strange and hard. 
that day should fail me ere I had them all declared. The Red Cross Knight relates how Fidessa, the falsest woman who ever lived, inveigled herself into his youthful inexperience. She won him by her wicked arts and crafty skill. She was evil, and he, a young knight, was innocent and inexperienced to her wily ways. She trapped him when he least expected it. There did I find, or rather I was found of this false woman, that Fidessa Height. Fidessa Height, the false dame on ground, most false Duessa, royal richly dight, that easy was to inveigle weaker sight. Who by her wicked arts and wily skill, too false and strong for earthly skill or might, unawares me wrought unto her wicked will, and to my foe betrayed, when least I feared ill. At this point, Una, who, wiser than the Red Cross Knight, well knew the wicked ways of the witch Duessa. It was Una who employed King Arthur to release the Red Cross Knight from the giant's dungeon, where the knight was imprisoned at Fidessa's behest. It was Una who exposed just how wicked and deceitful Duessa was. It was Una who spared Duessa's life, but forced her to flee into the wilderness to hide her hideous shame. She called Duessa a sorceress. Then stepped forth the goodly royal maid, and on the ground herself prostrating low, with sober countenance thus to him said, O pardon me, my sovereign lord, to show the secret treasons which of late I know to have been wrought by the false sorceress. She, only she it is, that erst did throw this gentle knight into so great distress, that death him did await in daily wretchedness. Una informs the king, her father, that it was Duessa who enticed this crafty messenger to bring this vain letter. It was Duessa's intent to break the bands between the Red Cross Knight and Una. She refers to the messenger as this false footman clothed in simpleness. The messenger is actually the archmagician and most wicked nemesis Archimago, who from the beginning set out to destroy Una. It was Archimago who tricked the Red Cross Knight into leaving Una by accusing her of immorality. Just as the Red Cross Knight accused Duessa of being the most false woman alive, Una accuses Archimago of being the most false man alive. The king immediately imprisons the false messenger Archimago, and thus Una and the Red Cross Knight conquered all of their foes, which, in addition to the fiery dragon, includes Archimago, Duessa, the giant Orgoglio, Sans Foy, Sans Loy, and Sans Joy. The arrest of Archimago makes their triumph over evil complete. Archimago, who actually represents Satan, was the last enemy to conquer. All the others had either been killed or banned. The imprisonment of Archimago gives complete closure in which the last enemy is conquered. Una, who was usually extremely wise, was herself once fooled by Archimago, as was the Red Cross Knight. This final victory shows how both the Red Cross Knight and Una have completely overcome the cunning of Satan, showing that the wisdom of God is greater than the cunning of Satan. And now it seems that she suborned hath this crafty message with letters vain to work new woe and unprovided scath by breaking off the band betwixt us twain. 
wherein she used half the practic pain of this false footman, cloaked with simpleness, whom, if ye please, for to discover plain, ye shall him Archimago find. I guess the falsest man alive, who tries, shall find no less. The king was greatly moved at her speech, and all with sudden indignation freight bad on that messenger rude hands to reach. Eftsoons the guard, which on his sate did wait attached with fader faults, and bound him straight. Who seeming sorely chafed at his band, he chained bare, whom cruel dogs do bait, with idle force did feign them to withstand, and often semblance made to scape out of their hand. Just as the Red Cross Knight had been imprisoned in the dungeon of the giant Orgoglio by the hands of Duessa, Archimago is now imprisoned in the dungeon of the King of Eden. But they him laid full low in dungeon deep, and bound him hand and foot with yarn chains, and with continual watch did warily keep, who them would think that by his subtle trains he could escape foul death or deadly pains. The images above suggest a comparison with the imprisonment of Satan after the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation 20 And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. The tale of the Red Cross Knight is symbolic of the war that Satan continues against man on earth after he lost the war in heaven. The Red Cross Knight is, however, additionally related to the book of Revelation. Archimago represents the cunning of Satan. The dragon represents his power. Duessa represents the whore of Babylon, the mother of harlots, as described in Revelation 17. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. Pacified the king renews the bands between his daughter Una and the Red Cross Knight. Thus, when the prince's wrath was pacified, he again renewed the late forbidden banes, and to the knight his daughter dear he tied with sacred rites and vows forever to abide. The king of Eden marries his daughter Una to the Red Cross Knight in the eternal bonds of matrimony. His own two hands the holy knot did knit, that none but death for ever can divide. His own two hands for such a turn most fit, the houseling fire did kindle and provide, and holy water therein sprinkled wide. 
at which the bushy teed a groom did light, and sacred lamp in secret chamber hide, where it should not be quenched day or night, for fear of evil fates, but burning ever bright. The language of Spencer is revealing. In the modern wedding ceremony, the words are, till death do us part. Spencer's terminology, however, is that none but death forever can divide. In other words, the only thing that can break the eternal marriage covenant between Una and the Red Cross Knight is being cut off from the presence of God forever. Death forever refers to spiritual death, or the second death. In other words, those such as the devil and his angels who do not fall under the mercy of Christ, or those who are unrepentant who die in their sins and must answer to the law of justice in hell. The eternal nature of marriage is further emphasized by the images of light. The sacred lamp in secret chamber hide, where it should not be, quenched day nor night for fear of evil fates, but burn ever bright. Then they celebrate the occasion with music. Then again they sprinkle all the posts with wine and made great feasts to solemnize that day. They all perfumed with frankincense divine and precious odors fetched from far away, that all the house did sweet with great array. And all the while sweet music did apply her curious skill, the warbling notes to play, to drive away the dull melancholy, the whiles one sung a song of love and jollity. The marriage is solemnized by heaven, for now we hear heavenly music, as if many angels were singing the eternal majesty in their trinal triplicities. The trinal triplicities is referred to both in Dante's Paradiso and in Milton's Paradise Lost. Let me quote from a footnote by the scholars presented by the Project Gutenberg. Quote, The threefold three orders of the celestial hierarchy, according to the scholastic theologians, were as follows. 1. Seraphim, cherubim, and throne. 2. Dominations, virtues, and powers. Three, princedoms, archangels, and angels. One is also reminded of Paul's two descriptions of heaven. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty through 42 There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. And also Paul's declaration of his visit to heaven. Second Corinthians 12 I knew a man in Christ about fourteen years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for man to utter. As a witness to the eternal nature of their marriage, during the wedding they hear music from heaven and many angels' voices. During the which there was an heavenly noise heard sound throughout all the palace pleasantly, like as it had been many an angel's voice 
singing before the eternal majesty in their trinal triplicities on high. Yet wist no creature whence that heavenly sweet proceeded, yet each one felt secretly himself thereby reft of his senses meet and ravaged with rare impression in his sprite. The marriage was a joyful occasion. A solemn feast was proclaimed, but none were happier than the Red Cross Knight. Great joy was made that day of young and old, and solemn feast proclaimed throughout the land, that their exceeding mirth may not be told. Suffice it here by signs to understand the usual joys of knitting of love's band. Thrice happy man the knight himself did hold, possessed of his lady's heart and hand, and ever when his eyes did her behold, his heart did seem to melt in pleasures manifold. However, even among the tremendous joy and celebration, the Red Cross Knight did not forget his duty to the Fairy Queen, for he was committed to serve her seven more years. Thus he leaves Una for that period of time, leaving Una in mourning. Her joyous presence and sweet company and full content he there did long enjoy. Ne wicked envy, ne vile jealousy, his dear delights were able to annoy. Yet swimming in that sea of blissful joy, he not forgot how he, wildsome, had sworn in case he could that monster beast destroy unto his fairy queen back to return, the which he shortly did, and Una left to mourn. The above illustrates the sacred nature of the covenant. The Red Cross Knight has sworn seven years of service to the fairy queen if he were given the power to kill the dragon. Though he had every reason to stay, he honored that covenant. And thus ends the tale of the Red Cross Knight. We know, however, from his noble nature that he will return worthily to Una, where they will enjoy eternal life together forever. Ultimately, the tale of the Red Cross Knight is about covenants. It was only when the knight broke his covenant that he was nearly destroyed, languishing in the dungeon of Orgoglio. That caused him to suffer the excruciating pains of repentance in the house of holiness. Now strike your sails, ye jolly mariners, for we be come unto a quiet road, where we must land some of our passengers and light this weary vessel of her load. Here she a while may make her safe abode till she repaired, have her tackle spent, and wants supplied, and then again abroad on the long voyage whereto she is bent. Well may she speed and Barely finish her intent. Let us remember that the Red Cross Knight, who represents all of us in our quest for perfection, was once an awkward, boyish knight who made lots of foolish mistakes, some of which almost cost him his life. Before he could fight the dragon, he had to become St. George, who symbolizes holiness. His wife Una symbolizes oneness. It is symbolic that they are knit forever in the bonds of holy matrimony symbolizing the eternal nature of virtue and the eternal nature of marriage and its eternal increase. Like the Red Cross Knight, we too must fight Satan and the evils of darkness. We must overcome his cunning. Since Satan is more powerful than we are, in the story of the Red Cross Knight, the dragon is compared to a mountain, his long tail over 300 yards long. 
So it is with our battles. Many appear as immovable mountains or obstacles in our path to perfection. The story of the Red Cross Knight is an allegory of the journey that we must all make faced with the cunning of Archimago, the seductions of Duessa, the enticements of the House of Pride, the fear of the giant Orgoglio, and the trials in a world without law, without joy, and without faith. As with the Red Cross Knight, there are enemies that we must all face in our time of probation. To prepare for our battles, we too must go to the House of Holiness. And like the Red Cross Knight, we too must put on the whole armor of God. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.